This week on Broadway for Sunday, July 16, 2017. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also, um, Peter, you have a busy day today, aside from recording our... Our uh, podcast this morning, you uh, are busy tonight at 7 and 9.30 p.m., aren't you? Yeah, uh, doing a Broadway musical, as we mentioned last week. And um, if you're uh, available on Wednesday uh, at the Yotel on 10th Avenue and 42nd Street, I'll be part of Villain the Blanks, uh, which is a Mad Lib type show that's put together by Billy Mitchell. So that's at 7.30 on Wednesday. So if you can't make uh, a Broadway musical, or if you didn't make a Broadway musical, depending on when you're listening to this, maybe we can shake hands at the Yotel on Wednesday night. The Yotel. I love that. Right. Every time I walk by it, I'm like, they got that wrong. No, I guess they didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said you've, uh, Peter, you said you've been to that space already. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's a nice space, nice new cabaret space. Very, very nice. Yeah, good for them. Have we talked about the, um, the theater space, the presentation space at the New York Times and yeah, New York Times building right off of Times Square? Sure. The new one? Yeah. It's quite a little oh, space I don't know. there, yeah. I don't know about if it's new, but there's one that um, it's on the ground floor and it, yeah. there's a lot of windows in back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, very nice. where they do? Do you mean where they do the Times talks? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, that's not that new, but well, uh, I mean, yeah. I, I'm, we're yeah. starting to see other types of theatrical, non-New York Times things happen in that space as well. Oh, Isn't I didn't it? realize that. That's great. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. More as a rental space for various one-off types of things. Perhaps we should oh. do a podcast from there. Yeah. <laughs> of course, the other voice that you're hearing is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist whose work appears at Talk and Broadway, Everything Sondheim, and Broadway Stars. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Morning. Good morning. And Michael, you are going to be going to uh, Broadway Stands Up for Freedom. So uh, do you have a couple of seconds to tell us about that? 
Well, yeah, it's a bunch of people, including two people from the cast of Hello, Dolly, at least uh, at least two people, Gavin Creel and Taylor Trench, and a bunch of their friends are doing a concert at uh, NYU's Skirball Center tomorrow night, uh, the 17th, uh, to, you know, well, I guess the title speaks for itself. So I'm really looking forward to that. All right. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Joshua Ellis is with us. Josh is uh, – we're going to have to discuss all the different parts uh-huh. of theater that Josh has been involved with. But we're here this morning to talk about Call My Publicist, the starry education of a Broadway press agent, which is going to be at the United Solo Theater Festival in September. So Josh is joining us by phone. Josh, thanks so much for saying hello. Well, it's wonderful to be with you today. Thank you. So tell us about uh, Call My Publicist, the starry education of a Broadway press agent. Okay. Um, it's really two stories. It starts out as a little boy who doesn't fit in. He doesn't like baseball. Circuses bore him. But then he sees the king and I in a summer stock tent, and it changes his life. <laughs> uh, he loves the fact that after the king dies... The king comes back to life to take a bow and acknowledge the applause. It's the first time the little boy sees a curtain call, and he knows that the theater is where he's headed. Mm. And the second part is really my education as a press agent, learning from some of the great master teachers that worked in the theater and I had the great privilege of working with, like David Merrick, the Broadway producer, famous mostly for, well, 90, more than 90 shows, including the original production of Gypsy, the original Hello, Dolly, uh, the original 42nd Street, and Stephen Sondheim, and Ewell Brenner, and Carol Channing, and Lena Horne, and Ethel Merman, and Sandy Duncan. The list goes on and on and on. So um, it's really... Uh, a joy to share stories, not just, and then I met, but really what they taught me about the business and the tricks of the trade, but also what they taught me as human beings, because many of them became close friends, and they taught me a lot about growing up. So who was uh, a particularly close friend that you've made as a result of being a Broadway press agent? Uh, I mean, I'd start with Yul Brunner, because... um, but wasn't he, was, he famously he, difficult? He was famously <laughs> difficult, but he he was also um, a, a man who t- treated me like a son, ultimately. And he taught me things in life that one father would necessarily teach a son. I mean, I'll give the best example is he taught me that I'm allowed to say I don't know. Uh. Um, he said that, Admitting you don't know is the beginning of knowledge. And Mm. that's a really great lesson to learn in life because there's a certain part, particularly when you're young, you're afraid to say, I don't know. And maybe I don't know means you're stupid or something. Mm. And uh, Mm -hmm. he taught me that it's not only okay to say, but it's smart to say. So it begins begins a process of learning. Um, from, From Lena Horne, I think I learned how to get older. I mean, I worked with her when she did Lena Horne, The Lady and Her Music, and she was 63 years old, which is now younger than I am now. Mm. But she, I watched her accept turning 
getting older in a way that made it feel perfectly okay, that there was nothing wrong with being whatever age you are. Just be the best you can at that age, but also to learn from the past and not be bitter about it because clearly she had been through quite a lot when I worked with her, but there wasn't really bitterness. There was knowledge that came from bitter times. So Mm -hmm. uh, that, from Carol Channing, you... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> She's just a festival, you know. <laughs> I, I, I imagine I, I imagine you learned to imitate her as. Uh, right, nobody... yes, I did, Peter. At Peter Felicia, <laughs> you know, when you worked with Carol, you learned that she never called people by just their first names. So it was like, "You by good morning, James Marino, Peter Felicia, and Michael Petantier. Well, how are you on this Sunday morning?" You know, it was. Um, she was outrageous, and uh, she taught me, and well, I guess she and you, Brenda, taught me in terms of being interviewed, answer mm. the question you want to have been asked, not the question you were asked. <laughs> and that's a really great lesson, because I remember they would, they, they'd be like on the Today Show, and she'd say, now how many minutes do I have? And like, like her first sentence would be like, well, here I am doing Hello, Dolly, at the Lundfontein Theater, and she'd give out the phone number, and she'd give out the address. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it was live, so what could anyone do? You know, so did, did did you have much interaction with her husband because he was rather uh, the person who pulled the strings, wasn't he? Yes. Um, her husband's name was Charles Lowe, and Charles Lowe did everything in life for Carol that Carol didn't do. She was on stage, but Charles was, was at every performance. He would lead the applause from different places in the theater. I'd recognize his applause <laughs> anywhere. And uh, he, I spoke to Charles all the time. Oh. Uh, he, he was very conscious of the fact that the revival of, King, of Hello, Dolly! at the Lunfontaine was happening simultaneously with the new production of The King and I at the Eurus Theater, and he would call me every Sunday night to get the grosses. <laughs> uh, he, would, he, would, <laughs> he called me for everything, and he, he, would, he would call me Josh the Magnificent, but oh. it, it, cannot get, it cannot get to your head, because I thought, well, this is quite an honor being called Josh the Magnificent by Char- Carol Channing's husband, till I found out that he calls everybody the Magnificent. So you were James the Magnificent, Peter the Magnificent, and Michael the Magnificent. So it, it you know, it was just Charles's way of speaking. You should now, tell Charles, bless your heart, Charles, bless your heart. Bless your heart, yes. I, I, I should add, by the way, that um, in the show, I actually impersonate many of the people that I worked with. So, yes, I do impersonate Ewell Brenner and Carol Channing and Eartha Kitt and Lena Horne and Ethel Merman and Sandy Junkin because I want people... It's not just for people who know about the business. I want to share the story. Really, I've done it in high schools and at the end of the show. I've turned each of the people into characters, so you don't need to walk in knowing who all these people were. I explain who they were and how they fit into uh, show business in the theater. So, um, I've already, of, uh, I've already yeah. seen two versions of the show. I guess it, I think it was the first, the very first time you did it in front of an audience, and then uh, was it just? And now again, I'm going to get the time. Uh, was, was it uh, l- last year that you did it for the Ziegfeld Society? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but I'm so happy to hear about United Solo because I actually I have a friend who had a one man show uh, that he was doing uh, called A Life Behind Bars because he's a bartender. Yeah, and and I told him about United Solo and he had never heard of it. Uh, and I told him about it and he got into it and he got a, a lot of interest. You know, it's it's a whole other audience. So I'm very happy to hear that you're doing it in that venue. Right, and, and and to do it in true Carol Channing fashion, I really need to say that my show at United Solo is on Thursday, September 14th <laughs> at 9 p.m. It is almost sold out, so I really would highly recommend that people go to unitedsolo.org or Ticket Charge because literally there are, I mean, a handful of tickets left that's two months in advance. I don't mean to hype it like it sounds like I'm Bette Midler and Hello Dolly or Hamilton, but truly, think about it now. Don't think about it on September 13th. That that way you'll only have a day to get tickets and they won't be available. Um, Now, Josh... See, I did did learn from Carol Channing. (laughs) Josh, um, in terms of working on what was it, about five dozen, six dozen Broadway shows you've done? Mm-hmm. All right. What a was lot. the one yeah, what was the one that really surprised you that became a hit that you didn't see coming as a hit? And for that matter, what was the smash hit that couldn't miss that did? Okay. Uh the one that surprised me the most, okay? Mornings at 7, the revival in 1980. I used to walk around with the script and call it the three-act Hallmark card. (laughs) I couldn't understand what was entertaining about it. It seemed just to show that nothing happened. I researched it and found out that Walter Kerr, the critic of the New York Times, many, many years earlier had written a book called How Not to Write a Play. And he used Mornings at 7 as an example of a show in which nothing happens. Um, And between writing that book and Mornings at 7 opening, he became the critic, the first-string critic of the New York Times. So he was going to be the one who's really going to make or break the show. And... um, It, it seemed boring in rehearsal. The director, Vivian Madelon, took forever to teach one of the actors how to snub out a cigarette. And I thought, oh, my gosh, if he's spending an hour teaching a man how to snub out a cigarette, um, this truly nothing's happening. <laughs> and, and then um, we, we got to the first performance, the first preview, and the audience just went wild. I mean, they laughed, they cried. And they fell in love with the people on the stage. And it happened over and over and over again. And I have never worked on a show where not only did the critics give it raves, but there was an actual sense that they had fallen in love with something that not only had been a flop when it originally opened in 1938, but in the mid-50s it had been revived off-Broadway and it was a flop. And now it's considered an American treasure. But mm-hmm. that's all really about Vivian Madelon and his incredible cast. I mean, including Nancy Marchand, who was just deliciously funny, and Maureen O'Sullivan and Teresa Wright and Gary Merrill and Elizabeth Wilson. I mean, they just made it magical. And it came as a great big surprise to everyone. So mm-hmm. that was the one that was like Hallmark card to big old smash hit and mm-hmm. Tony Award Best Revival. Uh, the one that seemed absolutely you could not miss was Mac and Mabel. 
mm-hmm. which was the reuniting of everybody who created the original production of Hello, Dolly. Jerry Herman, the composer, lyricist, Michael Stewart, the librettist, Gower Champion, the director, choreographer, and producer, David Merrick. The stars were eventually Robert Preston <laughs> and Bernadette Peters, and it has a fabulous score and an overture well, it's not now an overture, but right, it was right. the entr'acte at the time. Right. Um, it was wonderful, and it closed after three months. So I, I was in shock when it closed. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So, Josh, I wanted to ask you, you uh, worked for five years as Barry Manilow's publicist. Um, how come Broadway has not seen more of Barry Manilow? We've seen occasional uh, concerts from him as far back as... Uh, I guess in the 70s and the 80s, he's, he's done two concerts. But how come we haven't seen Barry write a show or perform in a show? Um, I would say that's Broadway's loss. Yeah. Because Barry did, in fact, write a Broadway musical called Harmony. Harmony, yeah. I worked at La Jolla Playhouse as the director of communications when it was done. I loved the show. I think it is absolutely Broadway material. The audience in La Jolla stayed for it for the entire three hours, and I can promise you that people in La Jolla do not necessarily stay for whole shows when they're that long. (laughs) It was captivating, and I'm sorry it has never gone to Broadway. So in terms of him being writing for Broadway, he has, and Harmony is the show, and it should still be done. In terms of performing on Broadway, I think it had to do with his really his schedule, you know, and, and finding a perfect part for him. I mean, he is definitely he's definitely a Broadway baby. You know, his early his first introduction to music was the original cast album of Thinian's Rainbow. Mm. And if you've ever heard his album called Showstoppers, it starts with something called the Overture of Overtures, which is a compilation of some of the great Broadway overtures all put into a huge medley. And it is as Broadway as Broadway gets. Hmm. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry if uh, I sound like a broken record to um, to listeners, longtime listeners here, but I have to, anytime anybody has ever worked with David Merrick, I've had to ask them about David Merrick's stories because I'm just fascinated by Merrick. So uh, anything interesting that, that pops into mind for David Merrick? Everything about <laughs> David Merrick. I have to say, I worked with him for 13 years, and I don't think there was one ordinary day in that 13-year period. Mm. Um, his mind was always going. He was coming up with ideas. And what he inspired me to do is, um, I talk about in my show about when, when 42nd Street opened, Merrick you know, Gower Champion died on opening night. It was probably the most famous Broadway night, opening night in, hist- in theater mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. But the press was obsessed with Gower Champion's death. I mean, that's all they wanted to talk about for months and months. And Merrick wanted them to stop talking about Gower Champion. And I came up with an idea for a stunt to audition pre-teen tappers who in 10 years would be old enough to go into 42nd Street. And I thought, well, you know, we could do it in a rehearsal studio with a uh, dance captain and a piano. And it was Merrick's 
I was collaborating with him in a way, you know, he wanted to do it on the stage of the Winter Garden. He wanted the kids to bring homemade costumes. He wanted them to cut to the theater early enough so that the dance captain could teach them the opening number from the show. When the press came in, the curtain was down, and it came up very, very slowly, just like it did in the actual production, and there were 250 preteen chappers dancing on the stage of the Winter Garden Theater, the opening number from the show. Mm. Okay, that is Merrick. Mm. But to top the Merrick that you go, well, that is just, I mean, only David Merrick would do that. Eight years later, two of those little preteen tappers actually joined the cast of 40 mm. which mm. was still running. So, I mean, we go through, okay, at the beginning of the show, David Merrick is 100% well. By the time those little kids went in the show, he had had a stroke and couldn't speak. He had aphasia. So, I mean, even even after the stroke, he was still able to do the stuff that most people today can't even do when they're 100% healthy. Mm. So he was wildly imaginative, and he gave me permission to be outrageous. And Mm. that's an amazing thing for a boss to allow you to do. The worst he could ever say is, no, it's no good, Josh, you know, and that would be it. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, know, it's like, you know, he he inspired lunacy. And no matter how bad or how crazy anything got, he would always say the same thing. Oh, are we having fun? (laughs) And I think if if you read anything about David Merrick and think that in his head he is saying, oh, having fun that that's what it's all about he did it to entertain himself he also happened to entertain everybody else at the same time and made them crazy i hasten to add <laughs> so josh before we wrap up i wanted to ask is there anything else that we haven't covered that you wanted to mention yes Thank you for asking that. And this has a lot to do with Merrick and Brunner together. They were master manipulators of the press. And something has happened to my show in the past six months. I haven't changed a word of it, and yet it's more relevant now than ever because we live in an era of massive press manipulation. Hmm. When we did it, it was to have fun and, as we used to say, put asses into seats. But now... You know, we have a a president who has a press secretary, Sean Spicer, who is as famous, he is now famous in Mm. his own right. Mm -hmm. Um, He's been impersonated on Saturday Night Live. Um, The idea of using the techniques that I learned from people like Merrick and Brenner, like sleight of hand, like being angry, these are all techniques that are now being used on the political scene to far more nefarious ends. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty fascinating for me to re- do my to rehearse it and go, well, I haven't changed a word, but it means it's something's really, really different now. And people have said to me who see me rehearse, they go, did you add that line? I said, no, it's been there mm-hmm. from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So um, that part's pretty fascinating to me because I had never done it before in the Trump era, and it will be interesting to see the audience response to something that was pretty benign six months ago or a year ago, mm-hmm. but not anymore. 
Mm-hmm. Well, Joshua Ellis has a show coming up at the United Solo Festival uh, on September 14th at 9 p.m. on Theater Row. It's called Call My Publicist, The Starry Education of a Broadway Press Agent. And we didn't actually talk about it. It's directed by Gretchen Cryer. So, it is indeed. And how, forgive me for not saying that. Oh, Ed Gretchen, yes. such a wonderful director. And mm-hmm. um, Josh, thank you so much for coming on Broadway Radio. Really appreciate it. We'll check in with you uh, right before. And make sure you get your tickets now because, as Josh mentioned, it's almost sold out. Josh, thanks you so much for terrific. joining us. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. section, Michael, you got to see what is turning out to be one of uh, this summer's hottest tickets. You got over to uh, City Center, where the Off Center series uh, production of Assassins is playing for just a a mere few days and uh, is uh, getting a lot of buzz. So tell us, what was your take on Assassins? Well, as I may have mentioned, this is the third production of Assassins I've seen in about a year's time. I saw two separate productions last year at on, on Staten Island. One was a community theater production and one was done at Wagner College. So there definitely seems to be Assassins in the air. I've read of at least one other major production somewhere that I can't think of right at the moment. And I think it's great, as we've discussed uh I think this is a show that was ahead of its time and a kind of show that the audience has caught up with, to put it that way. In fact, uh, I went to the matinee uh, yesterday, the 15th, July 15th, and on my way out, I ran into Andre Bishop, who had produced the original off-Broadway production. And so I, she, we were sort of walking out together, and I said, well, you, you started all this, didn't you? Uh-huh. And he said the most interesting thing. He said, yeah, and I'm going to tell you there were no standing ovations when we did it off-Broadway. And then he started to talk with me and two friends of mine, and he said um, – you know, the reviews were terrible. And he said, uh, one of the reviews said something like, this is a musical about people who crawled out from under a rock. And I said, well, that's kind of true, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he said, yes, but as a producer, you don't really want to read that. <laughs> so I, I knew what he meant. But anyway, it's this really quite brilliant Stephen Sondheim, John Weidman show, sort of in the in the uh, form of a review, really, about all of these people who either 
did assassinate or attempted to assassinate presidents of the United States. And this is the New York City Center Encores Off Center production. Music director Chris Fenwick, uh, directed by Ann Kaufman, choreography by Lauren Lataro. And the cast is, I'll read the whole cast because it's not that large. Proprietor Ethan Lipton, Leon <laughs> Kolgosh. Oh, <laughs> Schuler Hensley, uh, John Hinckley was Stephen Boyer, Charles Guiteau, Jonathan Conley, Giuseppe Zangara, Alex Brightman, Samuel Bick, Danny Wallahan, Lynette Squeaky from Victoria Clark. I'm uh, sorry, Aaron Markey, right. Sarah Jane Moore, Victoria Clark, John Wilkes Booth, Stephen Pasquale, Balladeer Clifton Duncan, David Harold, Andrew Durand, Emma Goldman, Pearl's son, James Blaine is played by Eddie Cooper, Billy Hudson Lavaro, President Gerald Ford, Damian Balde, and Lee Harvey Oswald, Corey Michael Smith, uh, with an ensemble consisting of uh, Damian Balde, Eddie, Eddie Cooper, Andrew Durand, Aaron LaCroix, Hudson Lavaro, and Pearl's son. It was a very good production in terms of the cast um, and the musical aspect of it. It was somewhat less staged than a than a full encore's production, but it's not a full encore's production. The uh, these off center productions that they've been doing for the past several years tend to be less staged, I guess due to less rehearsal time. But it still was certainly um staged enough for uh, the purposes of getting the point across of the of this really quite brilliant musical. And um the only actually the only one in the cast who I was disappointed with was this Ian, Ethan Lipton as the proprietor because, first of all, he was a, a different type than I've ever seen in that role. I, I've never seen him played as a sort of a nebbishy everyman, uh, which is the way they chose to go with it here. And that might sound like it would work, but it didn't really for me, plus the fact that for some reason his energy seemed very, very low. But there were – Several real standouts in the cast. I, 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 Shuler Hensley was absolutely riveting in his scene with uh, with Pearl's son as Emma Goldman and Victoria Clark and Stephen Pasquale. Um, Stephen Pasquale, as you might imagine, sang the hell out of the role of Booth. He was just really magnificent. And Stephen Boyer as, as Hinckley. Um, so this was really um, something that it was really great to be there. And I, I am told that it did sell out, which these things don't usually tend to do completely because City Center is such a huge place. But I'm... Uh, very glad I was there, and it's. I find it so interesting that this that this show has been uh, trotted out so often lately, and we can, I'm sure, all come up with our own reasons for that. But I also want to say that the audience was extremely respectful. There was no um, indication by the actors or the director or the audience of any need to um, hammer home any kind of a point about Donald Trump. The only time it actually came up, I thought, was at the beginning of the booth section where uh, one of the lyrics uh, and something to the effect of sometimes the country goes really wrong and sometimes a madman uh, comes along and and that happens and then we get through it. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, there was a lot of kind of chuckling and and other noises when, when he sang that. But 
it uh, wasn't nothing as sledgehammery as the recent uh, production of Julius Caesar that we saw at the Delacorte. And I think ultimately subtlety is, is the better approach. Um, so um, I think this was an excellent choice for Encores Off Center, and I'm really glad that I got to see it. It was very powerful back in 1991. A lot of us didn't respond to it because it was too tough to take. Um, uh, As someone who grew up in Massachusetts, as someone who was around when John F. Kennedy was president, as someone who was at least raised as a Roman Catholic, uh, it was very hard uh, for those of us who certainly admired Kennedy tremendously. And um, I while growing up, did not know a human being who did not. Of course, Nixon got plenty of votes in the 60 election, even in Massachusetts, but I didn't know these people. So seeing this scene where John uh, Wilkes Booth is encouraging Lee Harvey Oswald to kill is something that was so horrifying to me. And I remember the actor Tom Sesma in front of me when uh, Oswald takes the shot, actually putting his hands to his face in Mm. horror. Um, So, and I said to myself, I will never put myself through this scene again, never. And uh, then I got a call from Marilyn Eagle, who was running RCA publicity saying, we're doing the recording session. Mm. Uh, Everybody gets an hour. Why don't you come Tuesday three to four? I went and wouldn't, you know, they were doing that scene. I said, (laughs) I will never put myself, through the scene again and when the album came out I played the first eight tracks and I wouldn't play the ninth then the University of Cincinnati Conservatory of Music called me and said we'd like to have you come out and talk to the kids we're doing assassins and I thought all right there's no way around it I've got to face this scene and time had passed this was 1995 and I listened to the scene and I read the scene because the script was published by that time and frankly I think it's one of the most brilliant scenes in the history of musicals there's not an ounce of fat on it at all Yes. That's what's so amazing about it. And uh, as a result, um, yes, like so many Sondheim shows, we had to catch up to it. He was ahead of us, and John Weidman was too under these circumstances. And um, it's a show I've seen many, many times, uh, as recently as um, a couple of months ago in New Haven in a wonderful production that Yale Rep did, uh, just terrific work there. So uh, it's, uh, yes, and I I know what Andre's talking about when he says there were no standing ovations then. (laughs) We weren't uh, that day in 1991 when I saw it. Well, I must tell you, in this production, at the end of that scene you've been discussing, right after Oswald pulled the trigger, what we saw at the back of the stage was uh, basically a huge blow-up of a frame, the one of the worst possible frames of the Subpruder film. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't, I mean, it was done tastefully in the sense that it was, uh, it was blurred and it was broken up by it being projected over several screens the length of the stage so it's not like it was a completely clear image of of uh, uh, Kennedy being killed yeah. but uh, but everyone of course knew what it was and you could see Jackie going over the back of the mm-hmm. car you know mm-hmm. so that that I, I don't think I've seen that in any previous production of no set. well actually um, at the roundabout revival uh, they showed that film on uh, Neil Patrick Harris's shirt he was wearing a white shirt was it Neil Patrick did he play that part um, oh, that's right yes you're, you're right did he play that part um, yeah. whoever played uh, that part 
Yeah, okay. Whoever played Oswald um, had a, a white T-shirt, and they actually showed the film on the shirt, which was astonishingly powerful. So uh, that that film, by the way, is like um, landmarked and uh, is on the National Registry and all that. I mean, that man going to just have a good time that day, seeing the president, had no idea that, that his name would become a household word. Um, so it, uh, history's funny. All right, so that's uh, Assassins at Encores. If you're listening to this, you've missed it. It only played July 12th through the 15th, which is remarkably short for such a popular show. I, I'd imagine that uh, they must have known that going in, but they have uh, quite a lineup this summer, so don't miss the other ones. Let me see uh, if we have a list of the other ones. What are they? Yeah, we have bubbly, bubbly. The Bubbly Back Girl Sheds Her Chameleon Skin. And well, that's an that's excellent a, show. Excellent July show. 26th and 27th. Oh, my goodness. Only two days. Yep. And Really Rosie uh, from August 2nd to the 5th. Um, mm-hmm. So very, very short runs here. So uh, if you've missed Assassins and you're sad, make, make sure to hit the other mm-hmm. two right, right away. So, really Rosie, for those who don't know it, is the other Carol King musical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it will be <laughs> that one will probably be uh, yeah, pretty full for that reason. If, if only that. <laughs> um. All right. So next up, uh, Peter and I got a chance to see Pipeline over at Lincoln Center's Mitzi Newhouse Theater. So, Peter, why don't you start us off with Pipeline? I like this play a lot. Dominique Marceau's uh, newest play uh, dealing with a, a high school teacher in a public school who's having her share of troubles. <laughs> not as much as the classroom, uh, not as much as another teacher who comes in and certainly uh, bitches and moans um, morning, noon, afternoon and night. Uh, no, her problem is that she has a son who's in a private school. You would think that that would be a, a very nice thing. And obviously she and her husband have sacrificed because these private schools, as I don't have to tell anybody who's a parent, uh, aren't inexpensive. So so here we are under these circumstances, and the circumstances are not good because, unfortunately, the son has um, had an altercation with a teacher that turned physical, and now there's, uh, there's an excellent chance that he's going to be thrown out of the school. So the father gets involved, too. Now, the father is um, already moved on, has a new girlfriend, and um, so in essence um, – Karen Pittman, an excellent actress playing Naya, N-Y-A, uh, is having problems being a single mother, um, dealing with alone. And there's a lot in the play about the fact that is an absent father enough of a father when indeed he writes a check every month? Is there more to it than that? Um, is paying child support all that has to be done? What's really wonderful about the play, even though um, characters occasionally make grammatical mistakes, is these are highly intelligent people. And it's so wonderful to see everybody arguing on a very high plane. And the language is just magnificent and that's the real strength of uh, Pipeline Uh, I think uh, we can all guess how it might very well end but um, even so there is a good deal of um, important writing here Uh, I I can't recall when I've seen characters who have been this 
pungent, potent, and bright. So it, it was it was just wonderful to see. So and especially the acting as well. Uh, Karen Pittman, who's one of our finest um, young actresses, really brought it home. Um, and um, the young man Omari, um, that's the character name. His actual name is Namir Smallwood. Very very fine as the uh, son, and certainly for that matter, uh, Jamie Lincoln Smith as uh, the father was uh, pretty magnificent too. Um, the um, the boy has a girlfriend, and um, and she's very well played as well by Heather Velasquez. Uh, it's it's very nicely revealed how everything happens too, just by layer by layer by layer because when you first meet the son and his girlfriend you don't realize what um, what has happened uh, especially because in the first scene there are just tiny tiny hints of it and you really have to put it together like a mystery and under those circumstances it, it becomes riveting on those levels as well so this is a fine fine play it's downstairs at the new house underneath where Oslo is well has been playing and um, who knows maybe this will move upstairs it's a tiny play uh, there's not much of a set uh, it's, it's institutional white cement blocks representing uh, the school but uh, I hope we haven't seen the last of Pipeline because uh, it, it certainly held my attention, especially in the scene where the boy confronts the father and, um, and gives him hell. Peter, I'm, uh, I'm fully in agreement with you on this. What a play. They are just lining them up at downstairs at the new house. They're doing really good work down there. A few things that I wanted to point out is uh, – I, you know, I don't know if I can move upstairs. It feels like a small play yeah, that yeah. need that needs to play in a smaller house, and I think that I'll concede that. Yeah, and and I think that if they do move to a Broadway house, that we have a lot of nominations in store for this cast. Uh, mm-hmm. re- the 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 son, the uh, 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 Namir Smallwood, um, just. Uh, that that scene when you had just talked about him confronting his father, I was, I was like, this kid needs to, you know, be seen mm. by many many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, something interesting to me. Uh, so one of the characters' name is Omari, which is the son, and mm-hmm. the father is Xavier, who is played by Morocco, Omari. Oh, <laughs> I wonder if there uh-huh. is. So you know some connection between uh, Dominique Morisseau and uh, this um, this actor Morocco Omari. Maybe they've worked together before, and she uh, she may have uh, used his name there. It's, it just it struck me. It, it confused me a little bit when I went back to the playbill after the fact, and I said, "Oh, Omari, Mar- oh, which is the character? Which is the?" Uh, actor and so I thought that was interesting. The uh, the design, as you mentioned, that 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 very stark industrial design uh, is doing really well for uh, <laughs> for Lincoln Center because they used uh, just as they did in Oslo and some other recent shows. They're using uh, the back wall as a canvas to for projections, which are. Uh, which are done very, very well, uh, and uh, staging it with minimalist types of uh, of settings that indicate where they are, uh, and it's it's very clever. So this is uh, it's ninety minutes, no intermission. I think that 
this is a great candidate to transfer to a smaller theater if a smaller theater opens up. Uh, and I hope to see that, uh, that happen if, uh, if at all possible. Well, you guys, I'm going to really have to try to get to see this after giving your well, ringing endorsement. Yeah, and um, I, I'm very glad you mentioned, uh, James, the uh, the film that's shown on the back wall because yeah. this is simply shots of what's going on in high schools today and how terrible it is. And um, it's very, very hard for so many, so many people who have to go in there day in, day out. I mean, I, teachers I know who are in private schools tell me about the metal detectors. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily think that, but uh, but a lot of those issues are brought up in Pipeline. Yeah, and uh, it's a small cast, and each one of the characters has a very strong message to put out there. The the other teacher who uh, gets assaulted uh, before the show starts, and we see the her first introduction is as discussing the assault, and then later on in the show two kids in her classroom get into a fight and she puts herself in the middle of it. Uh, again, to talk about that, this is somebody who was just assaulted and had stitches on her face uh, from this last assault. And she again tries to, uh, you know, save, literally save these mm -hmm. children because it was possible that one of the, one of the uh, students was going to die. And if she didn't intervene, and then, then the fact is that she's, you know, she intervenes and breaks them up, and now she's under attack by the families of the children who are fighting and the administration by saying, you broke protocol to intervene in this fight, and she's possibly going to lose her job. Mm. And mm. then the security guard in the school, it, it's such a, it's 90 minutes. There is so much, we could probably talk for three hours about these 90 minutes. Mm, it's, true. it's really good writing. Michael, get to it. Absolutely. I yeah. will. I will. hear about that. All right. So that's uh, Pipeline over at the Mitzi Newhouse at Lincoln Center Theater. We'll have a link to all that information at the show notes. Of course, Lincoln Center Theater's um, website uh, has so much information, including interviews and, uh, and videos uh, and blog posts about their show. They're doing a very good job supporting that. Uh, next up, the three of us got a chance to get over to uh, American Airlines Theater on 42nd Street to see Marvin's Room. So, Michael, why don't you start us off with Marvin's Room? Yes, as I mentioned last week, I really enjoyed the production. I thought they did an excellent job in every way, especially the casting. My only problem being that I um, – and I'd like your guys' thoughts on it. I can't understand how that set design was allowed to happen by Laura Jelinek. To me, the main set of the, uh, I guess, the common room, the living room of the central character, it's supposed to be her home in Florida, was so vast. <laughs> um, and I don't know why they didn't decrease uh, the stage of the American Airlines Theater in some way with, uh, uh, you know, by moving the, the walls in a few feet on each side or perhaps also and or having a false proscenium i felt like they were you know the actors were trying to relate to each other but there were often all of this there was often so much space between them and it just worked against the intimacy of this really beautiful wonderfully intimate play by scott mcpherson about this 
caregiver, really wonderful, selfless caregiver woman who then finds that she herself has a very serious illness. And the question is now who's going to be taking care of her. Um, so, again, but again, um, the cast, uh, uh, Janine Garofalo, Lily Taylor, Celia Weston, Jack DeFalco, Carmen Lacivita, Nedra Clyde, Luca Padovan, and Trini Sandoval. I thought they were all excellent. Uh, I would like your guys' thoughts on the set, uh, or if it was just me. <laughs> My problem with the set had more to do with the fact that the play looked lost on that big stage. This is an off-Broadway show and should stay off-Broadway. And um, so no matter where they were, it seemed like I was watching ants crawling on a rock. Uh, so the design didn't bother me as much as that. Though I will say that my girlfriend, Linda, immediately said at intermission, what is it with this set? So she agreed with Michael totally. <laughs> okay. That was her first response. This is a very odd show for Roundabout to be doing because it does deal with death and old age. And it does deal with the, uh, the, the plot involves uh, a caretaker played by Lily Taylor. She's caring for her father. Janine Garofalo plays her sister who's not around. And this is a very common occurrence that the daughter who stays behind winds up taking care of the infirm father while the the other uh, sister has a, a, a happier life. Uh, not amazingly happy. She has her own problems too, believe me, because uh, she has a son that's uh, been very, very difficult, very difficult and demands a tremendous amount of care. And then there's a young boy too. Uh, so she has two children. The other one is reasonably normal, but uh, that doesn't make it uh, that much easier because of the other boys. So um, so here we are, and um, I would imagine the roundabout audience, which is not a young audience, wouldn't really like to see a show about um, a, a father who is dying whom you never see. He is Marvin. Mm -hmm. He's the one who's in the room, um, and um, he's always uh, behind um, uh, 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 those um, <laughs> blocks that are uh, translucent um, you, you, you can't really see through them um, but there he is behind them and he, well, every now and then we hear him moan and that's the end of it um, but wow I mean it's really a very depressing play and uh, you can spin it all you want saying it's about life and living and all. but you know I'm, I'm very surprised they did it uh, that said, I thought the acting was extraordinarily good. Uh, what a Broadway debut for Janine Garofalo. Uh, mm. I think it's tremendously potent uh, in the role of the sister who is not hanging around. Lily Taylor, magnificent um, as Bessie, the sister who does take care of the father. I am so, so impressed um, with uh, the, the kids who play the sons. Uh, Luca Padavan, who has a history with Newsies, is the younger boy. But my, uh, Jack DeFalco is Hank. Whoa, I mean, this kid uh, really establishes that uh, something's wrong somewhere. And, um, and he, he doesn't want to be who he is either. So that's very impressive as well, to see him doing the best he can under very, very, very difficult circumstances. He's on medication. He's, he's actually uh, been in an institution. Whether or not he'll ever get out is another story. Um, and uh, so, so it's... it's well, 
there's no way around it. This is a depressing play. That doesn't mean it's a bad play. Of course not. Um, but I, I'm really amazed that um, the roundabout audience, which from the outset really were looking at things they've either experienced or are experienced or don't want to experience, um, the applause was very lukewarm at the end of the first act and at the end of the show, too, uh, because of uh, the nature of the show. And as if the show wasn't depressing enough in itself, <laughs> uh, there is a note in the program and uh, notes in the program to tell those of us who didn't already know this or remember this, that Scott McPherson, the author, died of AIDS oh. shortly after the off-Broadway production. This this show came out at the height of the AIDS epidemic and, in fact, uh, was viewed at the time uh, especially as a sort of a uh, metaphor or you no, know, a, oh, a, a cop. A comment on that, even though it, AIDS is not the disease in question, it's leukemia. Um, by the way, uh, interestingly enough, uh, wanted to point out both this production of Marvin's Room and the off-center production of Assassins were both directed by Ann Kaufman. So she's been very busy lately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, I looked into the history of, of Marvin's Room, aside from everybody uh, um, – you know, when I say to friends, oh, I saw Marvin's Room, they were like, oh, the Leo Di- Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Uh, mm. And uh, I said, well, it's also a play. Uh, <laughs> I think it was a play before the movie. I'm not quite sure. About it. <laughs> I have never uh, seen that movie, but I gather it's a b- more well-known than I think, perhaps largely because of him. But also, yeah, also it's got Meryl Streep and Diane Keaton yeah. and, and Robert Gwen De Niro. Verdon. Gwen Verdon, too. And Robert De Niro, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh yeah so i mean it seems that, that there's a history uh a 1990 production at the goodman hartford stage did it as well uh it went to the west end it went to los angeles um when i saw the play at the round uh at a roundabouts production at the american airlines theater uh, a couple of weeks ago i felt that it started really slow and and maybe it's because those huge turntables turning the set around <laughs> were, were very mm-hmm. slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't think much about the set until last week when Michael had mentioned the set. And then I thought to myself, yeah, you're totally right. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine what, what had happened there. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But um, certainly they could have uh, learned something from Lincoln Center uh, in their mm-hmm. staging of Pipeline could have been the same sort of staging that they did uh, at American Airlines for Marvin's Room. Uh, a great cast and very interesting, the whole uh, uh, Lily Taylor and Janine Garofalo, um, who I never really think of as very similar we're like, wow, they totally are sisters. <laughs> and uh, they I absolutely are. felt exactly the same. Yeah. And it's not only Very physical good. resemblance, although that's part of it. Yeah. I mean, it's just they, there is a chemistry, a, a, a vibe up there that uh, can only be had between siblings. And uh, they, they convinced me of it 100%. And uh, what a cast. I mean, you know, you both of you have mentioned. Uh, at the outstanding performances already, so it's a uh, it's really good. Uh, I feel the same way as as Peter. I'm not sure why it's on Broadway. It might not be the, uh, the best suited thing in a presentation on a Broadway stage, um, but in a uh, off Broadway house, perhaps it would run for years. 
So uh, that's Marvin's Room over at the American Airlines Theater, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, you know, on that note, uh, just worth also mentioning that under any normal sa- circumstances, assassins would never be done in a yeah. place the size of city center. Oh, yeah. But sometimes things happen for, you know, for obvious reasons. And it, if it hadn't been done, <laughs> if it hadn't been done uh, at city center, uh, even fewer people would have gotten in to see it. Uh, so, <laughs> so I guess uh, in balance, it was a good thing. Uh, next up, Peter, you got uh, a chance to get down to Lafayette street to see Hamlet at the public. So uh, tell us about this, uh, controversial Sam Gold-directed performance. It is controversial, isn't it? And uh, many of us were surprised to see uh, an extraordinarily favorable review in the New York Times the other day um, because most people I've talked to, and some of the other reviews too, uh, weren't as taken with it as uh, Ben Brantley was. Uh, He does mention at the end some of the things that have bothered some of us, uh, the fact that uh, Polonius is seen sitting on a toilet uh, at one point. Um, so, yes, Claudius is not the only one who's on the throne. Um, <laughs> so, uh, also, we see Ophelia um, is um, bulimic. Um, we see her eating like crazy, and then we see her throwing up in that same toilet. So, uh, now that really wasn't the problem for me, though. The problem was that um, it was almost directed as a comedy, and that's very dangerous for a director with a serious play because once that audience gets used to laughing, then indeed it can take the play away. From, they, it, the audience can take the play away from you. And uh, that's pretty much what happened at the performance I saw. The audience just wasn't going to stop laughing. Um, also, if you're going to do Hamlet, you know, I mean, you're not going to pay the playwright, obviously. Um, he's not getting a royalty. So you have a little extra money, don't you? So must we have so much doubling? I love the doubling at the beginning. I thought, oh, this is going to be very imaginative because what you see is King Hamlet's death. I don't mean the kid. I mean the father. King Hamlet uh, dies, and then he gets up, and he puts on his uh, robe, and now he's Claudius. And I thought, oh, well, yeah, there is. Uh, they probably looked alike. They're brothers. That's great. Oh, what a great idea. Oh, this is going to be fabulous. Um, it wasn't because, again, the comedy was really stressed. None of this is a problem for Oscar Isaac, who is, I think, a terrific Hamlet. The poor soul is asked to parade around in his underwear for at least a half hour of the show, I would say. And um, that got a few snickers as well uh and i really thought that that was going to stop um when the second act meaning the second act of this production not act two of hamlet uh, would start and that started with the play within a play the murder of gonzago and uh, you know i i don't know really how to come down on the murder of gonzago because Let's face it, um, it's supposed to be a play that isn't very good. Shakespeare was having a little bit of fun there with that type of play that went on. Um, But don't forget that Hamlet does say to the players to hold a mirror up to nature, which is very good directorial advice for everybody. You know, the best comedy is true comedy. The best drama is true drama. Don't overact. Well, that's exactly what they do. And I guess that's what Sam Gold wanted to point out, that provincial players who travel around aren't very good, that um, they're not going to follow direction. They're going to do whatever they feel like. But, you know, how many times have we seen somebody, a character, a character now, die, go into agony, scream, yell, carry on before he finally dies? 
and you think he's dead, and then he jumps up and starts moaning again, uh, you know, and that's supposed to be funny, and then he finally dies. Well, here, after he finally dies the second time, he's not dead yet. He still goes into more moaning in that very, very hoary um, convention uh, that's supposed to get laughs and uh, was probably dated uh, by the time Shakespeare wrote this play. So... So uh, I was just a little too uh, played with too much of a wink for me. And again, the fact that um, the the players are played include Gertrude and Claudius. So you don't get the reactions of Gertrude and Claudius watching Mm. Gertrude and Claudius. Um, Yeah, that it it was just really done too much on the cheap. Um, I was surprised to see it in the Anspacher Theater as opposed to the Newman because uh, the Newman has more seats. And I guess I would have preferred it in the Newman if indeed that would have allowed for the budget to have more actors in it. There's also a musician, nothing against the musician, but um, at times uh, his playing is obtrusive. And uh, he plays during the scene where Hamlin is going to murder um, Polonius uh, inadvertently. I hope I haven't given anything away. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> the thing is, you know, I don't want music there. I mean, if, if, why have a musician? Why not use that salary to have another actor? So, um, so yeah, um, this was not my ideal production of Hamlet. Um uh, of the uh, 17 I've seen dating back to that famous Richard Burton production in 1964. But, mm. um, but you know, uh, there's nothing wrong at all with Oscar Isaac. And I, I would love to see him do the, he's very sure footed. He knows exactly what he's doing. And um, he, he really is so, so potent in this role. Um, but sure foot is the word I really want to go with that, uh, he, he, it's a tough role, needless to say, and to carry it on his shoulders, he really does. And uh, I'm very impressed with his performance. All right. So that is the Public Theater's production of Hamlet down at the Anspacher, as uh, Peter mentioned. It's through September 3rd, so uh, you can try and get some of these standby tickets, but my understanding is is that it's sold out. So, uh, yeah. well, he's a star, you know, I mean, yeah. people are interested in him. Um, but considering the type of stuff he's done for, no, of course, he has done Romeo and Juliet uh, on Broadway, but uh, that's not what he's famous for. And, um, you know, these these movies that he's done, these action films uh, certainly have made him a star. But boy, he's a very, very fine actor. We're lucky to have him. That Romeo and Juliet uh, was in the park. I saw that he was very good in that. Mm-hmm. How long ago was that, Michael? Oh, gosh, don't do that to me. I'm so... (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking, uh, I can't remember it. (laughs) I can't remember Four or five years, maybe. Oh, is it that recent? Okay. It was quite, it was fairly recent, yeah. Yeah. All right. So Michael, uh, Michael, haven't you learned? (laughs) (laughs) Don't bring bring something up if you don't know. No, 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 no. (laughs) Haven't you learned that whenever you estimate, not you, when anybody ever estimates, especially as we get older, how much time has passed, double it and you'll be right. (laughs) You'll be right. (laughs) We just had a a discussion with a listener about – uh, there's this possible revival of Stu's Passing Strange that it's playing oh, yes. in Philadelphia right now. And uh, Matt and I talked about it on Today on Broadway. And uh, one of the listeners said, uh, and I, I had said, you know, you know, 
Stu is very talented, but I prefer not to see him back on Broadway. He doesn't really appreciate Broadway, so you know there's a lot of there's limited space and a lot of things to come in. So, you know, Stu go forth and prosper elsewhere. Uh, and uh, a listener had contacted us and said, "Well, you know, it's ridiculous. You know, Passing Strange, um, you know, should be able to have uh, a revival. It's it's been ten years since it's been on Broadway, and uh, and Sideshow, Sideshow got a revival after ten years, and we're like, well, it was seventeen years. It wasn't ten years after it, but <laughs> and it also you know crashed and burned viciously when the revival came out as well. So." Uh, it's true, you know. You, uh, you think about it. Oh, that that revi- the original production of false uh, of not falsettos of uh, sideshow seventeen years. It seemed like less than seventeen. And sure enough, Oscar, sure yeah, enough, you checked too, didn't you? <laughs> that Oscar Isaac Romeo and Juliet was two thousand and seven. Double it, Michael. Ten years. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. <laughs> That's the oh, way it works. <laughs> Michael, do you remember your youth on Staten Island in the summer of 42? <laughs> it was not quite that long ago, but but pretty close. <laughs> well, Michael, you got back to Staten Island to see a production of Summer of 42. Uh, so tell us about that. Yes, this is the third, I believe, production I've seen of this musical, uh, Music and Lyrics by Hunter Foster and David Kirschenbaum, based on the novel and screenplay by Herman Rauscher, which I believe is a largely autobiographical screenplay, uh, novel and screenplay, and about a... um, about these three young kids, like teenagers, uh, spending the summer on an island, and this older woman who one of the uh, kids becomes enamored with, and her husband goes off to World War II, and he just becomes more and more in love with her, and then um, towards the end of the show, we learn that the husband has been killed. And the uh, older woman and uh, this central character, Hermie, they hook up physically. So it's a somewhat, um, I guess, perhaps controversial story. And and very – for its time, it was considered a pretty hot one. (laughs) Um, But it's got a lot of emotional content. In in its various forms, because of the the characters and their relationships and the, this woman's loss, uh, so this was a very small uh, production that I saw presented by the Little Victory Theater on Staten Island, directed by Brendan Stackhouse, and I really applaud them for doing such a great job on such a tiny stage. Uh, this would have been a better stage for something like Marvin's Room. <laughs> um, and the cast, uh, Michelle Caniglia, Emily Clapp, Jamie Cook, Brian Dratch, Dan Chris, Amanda Jane Snyder, Alberta Thompson, Robert Vaccaro, and Alex Ward. Especially Alex Ward uh, as Hermie was really superb. He, Alex has just uh, been playing Kristoff. Uh, he just got done playing Kristoff in the uh, Disney Cruise Lines version of Frozen, which, of course, now is coming to Broadway. I mean, not that version of it, but Frozen is coming to Broadway. And I, I've, I've said to a few people, I kind of wish that they had cast Alex in it because I'm not sure about the casting of the, the that I've heard uh, for, for the Broadway production. So we'll have to see how that pans out. So he was really excellent. And Dan Chris also uh, in the role of Oski, 
which is the, another prime role in the show. And and really, um, Amanda Jane Snyder, who played Dorothy, she had such a wonderful quality, beautiful voice, beautiful woman. This is the Jennifer O'Neill role of the older woman. Uh, and so I, I think that she <clears> – <throat> I liked her best of all of the three uh, Dorothys that I've seen in the musical of – summer of 42 um so so for those performances alone i'm really glad that i made the journey to staten island well i guess many of us <clears throat> don't have favorite letters to the editor um but i do <laughs> and my favorite occurred after tv guide was talking about the movie of summer of 42 uh when it was going to have its network premiere and it said it was a little trite and a little dull and so on and so forth Anyway, Herman Roucher, the uh, author of the movie, uh, wrote and, and they printed the letter where he said, you know, I have a feeling that if this movie were a French movie with subtitles mm. shot on the shores of Brittany in black and white, you would have said it was charming. And <laughs> I, 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 I think he's right. I really do. You know, what I mean, because Americans tried it, uh, suddenly uh, it has its problems. But had it been a French movie in black and white with subtitles? Yeah, I think he's right. I think he's right. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So uh, next up. Uh, Peter, you got to see The Crusade of Connor Stevens. So uh, tell us about that. Well, um, this is a play by Dewey Moss. The director is Dewey Moss. The lead producer is D. Moss Productions. So I think um, that much is clear as to uh, why this is now uh, ensconced in the Jerry Orbach Theater, that Dewey Moss wanted to see his play done. Uh, well, okay. Now... The thing I said earlier about Pipeline applies here because you go in there and you're a little suspicious that this is just going to be a vanity production. But Dewey Moss is very skillful at the layering thing I was talking earlier about. Little by little, peeling off uh, – the onion is often used as a, a, an image here – peeling off the skin of an onion, uh, letting you just get a fact every now and then so you can say, oh, so that's what ha – oh, so that's who that – oh, I see. So it's um, rather skillful in that way. So uh, the play is uh, one that deals with religion and uh, – the problem is that uh, we have this Bible-thumping man who's the father of a gay uh, man who certainly doesn't want his son to be gay and uh, will do anything he can to always point out that if the kid finds God, then uh, he will give up this lifestyle. A terrible tragedy has happened to the son as well as um, to the son's partner because they had a child uh, that they had adopted and unfortunately – uh, a gunman has gone into the school and has killed the child. Uh, and, um, of course, this is just horrific to deal with. But the question becomes, where did Connor Stevens, the murderer, get the motivation to uh, kill the child? Could it be from one of the father's sermons uh, that he uh, gives, whether people want to hear it or not? So... That's the crux of the play, and um, it's it's very well acted. I especially liked um, Jim Keybird, James Keybird, sorry, as Big Jim. Uh, he's the father. He's the um, the one who just believes in everything the Bible tells him. There's no other way around it. So, uh, and of course, playing Jim Junior, Ben Curtis, 
they the, a lot of sparks fly. But it's it's um, <clears throat> the whole family gets involved, and uh, the, certainly the other young man, uh, the other gay young man, uh, his 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 relatives or friends. I'm not sure whether it's relatives or friends. I have to admit, it may be I missed a line. It may be that wasn't established, but. Um, Nevertheless, uh, everybody has an opinion in this play. And, of course, I guess it can easily be criticized as a polemic. And while this is not mandatory theater going for a show that was directed, written, and produced by the same person, uh, this has more merit than you might think it uh, did when you walked into the theater. That's good to know. I haven't seen this production, but another point of interest is that in the cast is Ben Curtis, who some people may remember as the Dell dude in those mm, Dell yeah. those Dell computer commercials from years ago. Yeah. Uh, he's been he's been doing quite a bit of acting lately, and so I, I'm interested to see it uh, for that reason among the other reasons. And this is up at the uh, what they're calling the theater the theater center. Which is uh, the old Snapple Center? Is that right? Where, where the fa- it's in the space where the Fantastics was for all those years. So um, <clears throat> um, this will not last remotely as long, and um, I don't mean to oversell it. All I'm saying is that uh, it's easy to look at the glasses half full when uh, under the circumstances of it being a vanity production. Mm. All right. So uh, next up, Michael. You got to 54 Below, where you saw 54 Sings Man of La Mancha. Yes. About that. Yes, it, it, Man of La Mancha might not seem the ideal choice uh, for that venue, just because it's, uh, well, the type of music, and it's, uh, you know, it's a fairly dark piece and serious, and uh, maybe not the first kind of Broadway-ish, you know, razzmatazz kind of music you might expect to hear in a, in a, in a nightclub, basically. But I uh, have gone to a couple of these 54 Sings shows where they, you know, they, they're really so valuable just to present the, the, usually the highlights of a score. Uh, and obviously simply done, you know, usually just piano or maybe, you know, two or three musicians at most. And, and, uh, you know, small cast, but just going through uh, the high points of musicals of every possible type. And and so I'm glad that they did it, uh, even if it does not seem the most obvious choice. And I, the main reason I thought, well, I really would like to see this is because the cast consisted of William Michaels, who was really superb as um, Cervantes Quixote, Leslie Margarita, was Aldonza, and I really only know her from her brilliant comic performance in the unfortunately short-lived Broadway production of Dames at Sea. Uh, I never pictured her in a role like Aldonza because I just never thought of her that way from having seen her as Mona Kent. But um, actually, first of all, when you look at her, she's extremely beautiful. Uh, And that was one of her qualifications for the role, but also she really has an excellent voice and she did a wonderful job with those songs. And then um, Anthony Santelmo Jr., uh, whom I've seen in a few things, was Sancho. And for me, one of the other highlights was Bob Stillman, uh, who is a two-time 
Tony nominee, and he uh, really did a beautiful job with the Padre song to each is Dulcinea, which is uh, one of the absolute highlights of the score, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but they also let him sing the lyrical version of Little Bird, which is normally sung by one of the muleteers. So it was a, a wonderful um, condensation of the score. Scott Siegel uh, produced this program, and he provided just enough narration to tie the songs together. Uh, I know this is not uh, Peter's favorite show in the world. <laughs> and actually, I, I recognize a lot of a lot of the flaws that <laughs> Peter recognizes, too. But I do think it, it has its moments. And it's nice to hear the songs every now and then, especially when done so well. Uh, and William Michaels is just about perfect <laughs> casting for for this role. And I'd like to see him do the, the whole role someday. So hopefully that will happen. Uh, this is this would probably be my favorite Man of La Mancha because it's the book that I uh, have problems with, not not uh, the score per se. Yes, I, I will admit that uh, the lyrics about you can uh, make giblets of my toes um, <laughs> is not uh, among my favorite Broadway show songs. But uh, but the score I really do think is solid. And uh, I, I have to say this, uh, maybe I shouldn't, but um, for years we had heard uh, rumors here and there that Mitch Lee really didn't write it, that he was uh, the head of a company that had songwriters on his staff and, and they all uh, chipped in. In and they, everybody wrote a song, and uh, and suddenly you had Man of La Mancha. That's been said so many times over the past 52 years. And uh, the reason I bring it up is to say I don't think it's true because I would have assumed that at least one of those people would have by now, even as a deathbed confession, would have said, you know, um, I wrote um, Dulcinea or what have you. You know, so um, I'm I'm going, and it, it might be lousy of me to even bring it up. Maybe some people who are listening have never heard this rumor, but it's been rampant. Uh, in my life, and um, and so I, I'd like to cast my three electoral votes and say I don't believe it's true, and I really think Mitch Lee did a wonderful job of writing terrific music, and I think Dulcinea may be one of the best uh, ballads that we've ever had in the history of Broadway musicals. Thank you for clarifying, because I'm not sure that I realized that that it was specifically the book that that you had your issues with. Yeah, I think I, I always try so hard, but by the time he says. Mm-hmm. That, um, the barber's bowl is the golden helmet. That's uh, I, he, he's crazy. I mean, I, it's not. Just, I love to be optimistic. I'm tremendously optimistic, but enough's enough. So um, there is a difference between uh, either craziness and senility and optimism. Uh, so uh, that's what always bothers me about Man of La Mancha. You know, that other thing you mentioned, Peter, I think some of these things we will never know for sure. Uh, I I, I don't know if I mentioned this recently, but there seems to be a little bit of rewriting of history um, through omission, Uh, not not uh, misstatements, but just through omission in terms of. Uh, what parts of Hello, Dolly may or may not have been written by other people. I, I, what I've read in the notes for the new cast recording and also in the program, this incredibly gorgeous <laughs> souvenir program that they finally have out, it's uh, it's just kind is it, of – Is it true not, that it's $45? Yes, I, I have heard that. But I want to tell you that I would say it's worth twice that. My God. 
it's they i have never seen such beautiful photos printed so beautifully and so large plus there's lots of uh, other features in it that one really interesting articles and des- uh, on the design elements and and the history of the show pictures of um of most of the famous dollies who did it before Bette Midler. Uh, it's, it's really quite something. I would say absolutely at least worth that price. God. <laughs> well, let me uh, uh, go back to William Michaels for a second. I don't, I don't know if you guys knew that uh, I produced one of William's uh, CDs and a concert at Carnegie Hall uh, back a long, long time ago. I want to say 2001 or so. Um, and I think that he has done Man of La Mancha many times. I'm sure. Yeah, I didn't I, actually I look have, it up. Yeah, but, <laughs> I have not, yeah, I've not spoken to him recently. In fact, it gives me a good reason to call up and say hello, see how he's doing. But I'm pretty sure he's done Man of La Mancha many times. Um, and then the other thing is, is that it's interesting because tilting at windmills is certainly something that is... Re- <laughs> relevant to today's political uh, discussions. So mm. uh, I think uh, maybe yep. Man La Mancha, you know, is could possibly be due for a, a revival of some sort. Maybe uh, somebody could rewrite the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, I guess that wraps it up for today. Before we head over to our trivia question and answer, or answer and question, actually, I should remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes or Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is the Stitcher app, which is an application for your iPhone or your Android device. Um, iHeartRadio plays us. Uh, you can find us in the Google Play uh store. You can uh, find us on TuneIn on your Amazon Echo. Uh, anywhere that you can find uh, finer podcasts. So, uh, Broadway World Radio plays us also Wednesdays at noon, Thursdays at 7pm, and Saturdays at 2pm. And contact information as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today can be found at broadwayradio.com. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? Last week's question was uh, a, a spin-off of the week before when I gave names such as Lily Garland, uh, Harold Hill, and Sweeney Todd, and uh, the point was that they actually had different names somewhere along the line, and people guessed that, but only a few people had guessed who Dolores Zeppel was, so I asked, who was Dolores Zeppel, and what two other names did the character have, and in what show did she appear? And actually, it was Bring Back Birdie. Dolores Seppel was actually born Dolores Lopez, but changed her name to to better her chances as a vaudevillian because Zeppel is Lopez spelled backwards. And her her being Spanish may have held her back, she felt. Um, Actually, I'd like to see Dolores Seppel in a show by David Zippel, but that's another story. Anyway. I'd like to see another show by David Zippel. (laughs) Me too. Anyway, Dolores changed her name once again and became Mae Peterson, Albert's mother. So, yes, after all that carping in Bye Bye Birdie that May did about Rose's being Spanish. In Bring Back Birdie, she admitted that she was Spanish all along. And you wonder why Bring Back Birdie closed after four performances? (laughs) All right. (laughs) The new one. Some decades ago, he had a small role in the play Midsummer Madness. But less than a decade later, he starred in the musical film The Fiddler and the Fighter. 
Who is he? Wow. Okay, so if you know that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you are on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. How quick it heals That it's a place where you can make the lies come true Spread the word If you try Gotta spread the word That's all you have to do Right, all you have to do Sure, the mailman won the lottery.